From the Salvation Army, welcome to the Holiness Podcast with Lieutenant Colonel Vern Jewett. In this monthly Bible study, we'll be exploring God's gift of holiness, which is offered to every Christian. To download this month's study guide, visit us at salvationarmysoundcast.org holiness. Hi, this is Vern Jewett, and welcome to the Holiness Podcast. Uh, It's great to have you with us today, and we are coming to the end of uh, what has turned out to be a uh, five-month study on corporate or social holiness. Now, it might be interesting for you to be reminded, some of you, that uh, it was a reader who, a listener, who asked about the topic of social holiness, and... We prepared a couple of podcasts and then found ourselves uh, not quite completing the subject, not that we could possibly complete it, but uh, it is now turned into uh, quite a study. Four of the five lessons have been in the book of 1 Corinthians, and we will be uh, working in the 14th chapter of 1 Corinthians in just a few minutes. And uh, we've been talking about the fact that we are going to address not because it is crucial to holiness, but because it is very informative to the teaching on the body of Christ. And it is an issue that does carry with it a lot of confusion, Uh, certainly questions on the part of many believers. And that is the teaching in 1 Corinthians 14 on speaking in tongues as a spiritual gift. So the bulk of the teaching in a few minutes will be uh, a review of speaking in tongues in the New Testament, and uh, that will be an interesting and exciting time. And right at the beginning, I would uh, invite you to uh, respond with questions or comments uh, in the ways that are available to you through this podcast. Uh, If you Uh, have such questions or comments following this teaching. But holiness is an inexhaustible subject, and we are going to focus our thoughts today on holiness as growing in grace. Holiness as growing in grace. Now, it might seem self-evident that we need to grow. I hope that it is, because holiness is not a singular experience. Holiness, sanctification, is a way of living that begins the moment we receive Jesus as our Savior, and then, because we are in relationship with him, are seeking the fullness of the Spirit and seeking the power of the Word and the leading of the Scriptures in our lives and the guidance and encouragement and everything that comes from our participation in the body of Christ, all is aimed at helping us grow in grace. Holiness is about growth, and that was a major emphasis of uh, Charles Wesley and John Wesley in their teaching and writing of music. Uh, We need to grow. Now, 1 Corinthians is addressing a congregation where Paul is gravely concerned that they are not growing. 
Let me just say this before we jump in a little further. My experience with God and my relationship, which uh, should be open and transparent if the Holy Spirit has control of my life today, that experience will not serve me tomorrow. Because tomorrow, there are going to be new challenges, new people, new relationships that come into my life. And so living a holy life is a lifelong moment-by-moment process of seeking the will of God and allowing God the Holy Spirit to lead us on a regular and moment-by-moment basis. So when we say holiness or sanctification, those terms are interchangeable, we are talking about what happens for the whole life of the Christian as we continue to grow uh, from the moment we are saved. Salvation Army had a wonderful holiness teacher named Commissioner Samuel Logan Brengel. And in his book, The Way of Holiness, he says this, the Bible teaches us that we can be like Jesus. We are to be like him in our separation from the world, in purity, in love, and in the fullness of the Spirit. This is holiness, a clean heart in which the Holy Spirit dwells, filling it with pure, tender, and constant love to God and man. You just get a sense of why he is uh, such an important and uh, helpful teacher on holiness. Then he uses this illustration. There is a plant in South America called the pitcher plant, on the stalk of which, below each leaf, is a little cup-like formation that is always full of water. When it is very small, it is full. As it grows larger, it is still full. And when it reaches maturity, it is still full. That illustrates holiness. All that God asks is that the hearer should be cleansed from sin and full of love, whether it be the tender heart of the little child with feeble powers of loving or the full-grown man or woman or of the flaming archangel before the throne. When filled with holy love, in the context of continued obedience, the heart will grow more and more like Brengel's South American pitcher plant. It will be filled even more and more with the holy love of God. And last month, we studied 1 Corinthians 13. And the essence of agape love, which is the power available to Christians. So that's the setting, as we want to talk about growing in grace. Now, I've been studying 1 Corinthians for about 50 years. And I have become convinced that the entire overwhelming reason that Paul wrote this letter was because the Corinthians had stopped growing. They were not growing in grace. In fact, you begin reading the letter. It's 16 chapters long. Sometimes those are helpful. Sometimes they're not. But by the 10th verse of the first chapter, he raises the whole issue of the divisions in the church and why he is writing to them. And 
the first study we did on corporate holiness grows out of that discussion, and it was in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And there we studied in particular that the church is the temple of God. In chapter 3, when Paul says, you are the temple of God, he uses the plural tense. And that chapter, of course, is when he calls them immature, tells them he wished that they were growing, but he couldn't even give them meat from the word. He had to give them milk like babies because they were not growing. And the competing factions in the church made the body of Christ not function, and they were not benefiting from each other's gifts. We learned in that lesson that I cannot be holy apart from you. You cannot be holy apart from me. We who are in the body of Christ, we who are part of a local congregation, we're not just friends and acquaintances. We're not just people that go to the same church. We are the family of God. We are the body of Christ. Each of us a unique part whose gifts are designed to complement and help all the other members of the body. We are God's temple. Now, the podcast after that, we took advantage of looking at an amazing verse with an amazing teaching, and it's found in Colossians. I want to summarize where we have been because this uh, podcast will wrap up the teaching on corporate and social holiness. So we went to Colossians 1.28. That verse says, and we proclaim him, with a capital H, we proclaim Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ. And here we discovered that the purpose of the church is to make every person complete in Christ. And that happens to be the term that Paul uses most of the time to describe holiness. And we learned about the word teleos, which means that uh, the word translated in the King James, teleos, as perfect, really means to be fully mature, to have continued to grow until you reach a point of maturity and keep growing on a daily basis. Now, you are saved into the church and made part of the family of God. The Holy Spirit who lives in you also lives in the body of Christ. Your spiritual life is interdependent with the lives of other believers. And we learned that we achieve the purpose of presenting everyone holy in Christ. Not some. Holiness is not for an elite few, but Colossians 1.28 tells us that we proclaim Christ and we admonish and we teach so that we can present every believer complete in Christ. Then we turned for the last three podcasts in this series to 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, and 14 and the teachings on the body of Christ. That seemed to make perfect sense to me. I hope it did to you because the teaching on the body of Christ makes an assumption 
that all of us are active in the body of Christ. Can you imagine Paul and the leaders of the early church being asked whether joining in fellowship with other believers was really necessary for Christians? They would have been shocked by the question. To become a Christian means a transformation that affects the whole life. And this life brings them into intimate personal relationships with their brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we began in chapter 12. Now let me share with you my own conviction. The section, and remember this is just a letter, so we're getting toward the end of the letter. In fact, he's going to only go back to the gospel and talk about the resurrection in chapter 15, and then he's going to close off the letter in chapter 16. I believe these three chapters is where Paul was headed from the very beginning. You remember what he did? He just blurted out, verse 10, chapter 1, you have a problem that we have to deal with. There are divisions in the church, and you are not working together, and you are not growing. Now, these three chapters, I believe, are the antidote to not growing in Christ. And that's why we've taken time with each of them. You'll remember, some of you, uh, two podcasts ago, we talked about chapter 12. God desires in the body of Christ that we all relate openly with one another because we are one body and we are not saved into a vacuum. Part of salvation, this whole series has helped us see, is that we are saved into the body of Christ. And we learned in chapter 12 that in the body there are no independent people. There are no unimportant people. There are no self-made people, and there are no stagnant people. That last one kind of addresses the problem of the Corinthian church. They're saved but stuck, a phrase we have used in the past, of the need to be in right and full relationship with God. And we were reminded that the idea of an independent Christian especially is absurd by definition. We are all mutually dependent parts of the body of Christ. And that brought us to 1 Corinthians 13. That amazing passage. It's all about spiritual power, and the source of all spiritual power is agape love. That's divine love. It's supernatural. It's not a love anyone can conjure up by themselves. It separates itself from the other kinds of love, the words that are used in the original language, the Greek language for love, that all are human ways to love. But to love divinely, to love agape, unleashes spiritual power through every spiritual gift by means of the Holy Spirit within a believer. It only comes from God through the Holy Spirit. And we looked at that amazing passage, the essence of which was, it doesn't matter which of the gifts you have, the ones that are considered more important, the ones that are not, you can take any spiritual gift and function at its highest level, but if you don't have agape love, 
it doesn't mean anything. The power is not there. The power is in agape love. And that brings us to chapter 14. I'm still stunned and startled by the placement of that incredible chapter in teaching on love. It's almost sublime as we looked at it gingerly last podcast. It's amazing. And yet it sits between two chapters dealing with all these practical problems of the church and of believers. Let me say this before we jump into uh, the topic of spiritual gifts. Corinth was a very important city. It was a commercial center, had 200,000 people, a sea trade. When you visit Corinth today, and they've done a great deal of excavation, and it's a very exciting place to visit, to study the life of Paul and the early church. You will find that uh, the sea has subsided several miles from where the ships used to come in. It was a sea power. Also, what is so striking to me is I believe when you enter into the world of Corinth, you see the United States of America 2021 everywhere. I don't know of any other church or place in the Bible where the culture is more like the culture in which we live. It was a culture of pluralism. It was a culture of license. It was a culture that lifted up glamour. It was a culture of individualism. Any of those things ringing true for you? Here's a couple more. It was a culture where boasting and preening was the norm. It was a culture of patronage. That's a big one to explore in our own culture. And it was a culture of rhetoric. And as I read what the Corinthians struggled with, I have over the years found a great deal of personal insight and help in my own spiritual life. Well, chapter 14. I want to talk about speaking in tongues in the New Testament. And the evidence and occurrences of speaking in tongues are very, very few in the New Testament. Obviously, uh, we're trying to do the impossible. I was telling Major Henderson, who's here with me, that usually this is a seminar. We take several hours, but it's too important not to address it. And I do think we can share some important truths that may be of help to some listeners, because I find that people have a thousand questions about speaking in tongues. I want to share two key lessons with you. Here's the first lesson. The coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues. The first one is recorded in Acts chapter 2. The second one is found in the passage we've been studying and particularly today's chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians. What happened at Pentecost and the gift of speaking in tongues are not the same thing. In fact, 
They couldn't be more different. As I was preparing, I thought to myself, having been a pastor for a long time, that this may be the most important lesson I would want any Christian to learn as they start to look at speaking in tongues in the New Testament. These two events and experiences are completely different. Now, let's look for a moment to see why I say that. When you read the story in Acts chapter 2, and we're not going to take the time to read it, uh, I invite you to do that if you're not familiar with it. What happened was there was a temporary enablement given to the 120 disciples who were seeking the Lord in the upper room and were waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit to speak in tongues, actually to speak other tongues, which clearly are actual human languages. We know they were human languages because everyone, Acts 2 says, who was there listening to them, understood in their own language because at the time of Pentecost there were people from many different countries and many different languages and they all heard a witness to the observers, uh, to the uh, power of God and Peter uses that witness and that sign in his message on the occasion to help them understand. And it was uniquely accompanied not only did these 120 disciples start speaking in other languages, extolling the, the and praising the works of God? But there were tongues of fire that appeared over their heads, and there was a sound of a rushing wind. Now that's the experience at Pentecost. Let's compare it for a moment with 1 Corinthians 14 and the gift of speaking in tongues. The gift of speaking in tongues, like all gifts, are to be used and repetitively in the church. The Holy Spirit, we learned in chapter 12, distributes the gifts to whom he pleases, and they are all for the edification of the church. And so it is not a temporary enablement, it is a permanent enablement. It's not human languages. In fact, we're going to see in 1 Corinthians 14, it is unintelligible to all who are listening unless there is an interpreter of the speaking in tongues that takes place. It is, you could say, and many do, a heavenly language because it is addressed to God. Couldn't be more different from an actual human language. The other tongues of the Pentecost experience. There were no tongues of fire. There are no sound of rushing wind when the gift of speaking in tongues is used in the church. And while the evidence of speaking in tongues in Acts 2 at Pentecost was a sign and a witness of the power of God, and Peter used it that way in his message, we're told in chapter 14, that speaking in tongues in the church service is confusing, especially to unbelievers, because no one except maybe the person speaking, but only the person interpreting understands it. 
So these are two completely different experiences. Now, when I tell you that every instance of speaking in tongues in the New Testament, every reference is found either in Pentecost story, Acts 2, or in 1 Corinthians 14, except for the two times that apparently Pentecost was duplicated at critical points in the history of the church. Many people believe the coming of the Holy Spirit and this, these signs and evidences at Pentecost are the birth of the church. And you'll remember, if you turn to Acts 10.46, when the gospel came to the Gentiles, when Paul was visiting the house of Cornelius, it says that they were speaking in tongues and praising God, and then the comment was made, the Holy Spirit has been given to them just as he was to us at Pentecost. So it's clear that it was very crucially important for Paul as he was going to return to the Jerusalem church and, and assure the Christians there in the founding church that Gentiles had indeed received the Holy Spirit and that what had happened to them was the same thing as they received Jesus as their Savior, and the whole household of Cornelius did that day. And so they had the same evidence as the evidence at Pentecost. And everything points to the fact that what happened at Pentecost happened in Cornelius' house. And then the only other time in the New Testament, again in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 19, verse 6, the disciples of John the Baptist were encountered. And when they were asked if they knew of the Holy Spirit, they said, we've not even heard of the Holy Spirit. And so there was something surely truncated in, the, in their experience of salvation if they didn't even know of the coming of the Holy Spirit into a believer's life. And so when that was shared with them, it says that they spoke in tongues and they prophesied. So those three times in the book of Acts are all important signs in the history of the church that affirm the coming of the Holy Spirit in power. Outside of 1 Corinthians 14, there's no other mention of tongues. So that's the first key lesson, is that this gift, spiritual gift of speaking in tongues, in the context of the teaching on the body of Christ and all the spiritual gifts has nothing to do with what happened at Pentecost. Here's the second lesson. Paul's overriding concern that the Corinthians are immature and not growing, which again, I am convinced is what is driving this entire letter to the church, is illustrated most poignantly in his teaching on the body of Christ and spiritual gifts in chapters 12 to 14. And we've looked at chapter 12 and learned about the spiritual gifts and their purposes. We've looked at chapter 13 and seen that love is the power that comes from God the Holy Spirit by which we can do anything of spiritual significance. 
And now in chapter 14, Paul strongly admonishes the Corinthians in their fascination with the gift of speaking in tongues because it does not edify the church. He compares it in this chapter to prophecy, which does in fact edify and grow the church. And so the connection is there. Our topic is holiness as growing in grace. And the Corinthians are not growing. And this, I believe, is one of the key things Paul wanted to say to them. There's no teaching as long as these three chapters anywhere in Paul's letters. And this matter of the gifts of the Spirit and how they grow each other in, uh, among the believers in Christ is a very, very important lesson, not only for them, but for all of us today as well. So having said that, we are going to read through most of chapter 14 and make comments as we go. Remember, chapter 13 ends, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Now chapter 14, the first thing he says is, follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. Indeed, no one understands him. He utters mysteries with his spirit. But everyone who prophesies, and you remember, stop for a moment, to prophesy means to speak the word of God with power. It's probably best connected with what we would call preaching in the church today. Now back to the text, verse 3. But everyone who prophesies speaks to men for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. He who prophesies is greater than one who speaks in tongues unless he interprets, so that the church may be edified. The key to those five verses is what grows the church is prophesying compared to speaking in tongues. You see the words, prophesying strengthens, encourages, comforts, and edifies the church. Now, let's keep reading. Verse 6. Now, brothers, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? Now, did you catch that? None of those things, knowledge, prophecy, word of instruction, or revelation, the things which edify the church, come through tongues. They do come through prophecy. Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds such as the flute or harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is a distinction in the notes? Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So it is with you. Catch that phrase. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you are saying? You will just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. 
If I then do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I am a foreigner to the speaker, and he is a foreigner to me. So it is with you. There it is again. Since you are eager to have spiritual gifts, try to excel in gifts that build up the church. <laughs> Can you see and sense Paul's frustration with their fascination with speaking in tongues? Let's keep reading. For this reason, anyone who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret what he says. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my mind. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my mind. If you are praising God with your spirit, how can one who finds himself among those who do not understand say amen to your thanksgiving, since he does not know what you are saying? You may be giving thanks well enough, but the other man is not edified. You see, Paul's praying in tongues. Well, let's look at verse 18. He says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you, but in the church I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Now, there are a couple key clues to our understanding, speaking in tongues here. Paul's praying in tongues, and that's what we assume it is, is not in the church. It's private. In the church, he speaks intelligible words that mean something to others. And then he uses uh, one of his favorite illustrations that their immaturity makes them like children. He says, brothers, stop thinking like children in regard to evil. Be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. In the law, it is written, though men of strange tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, but even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. That's a quotation from Isaiah. Now he resumes his clear teaching. Tongues then are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is for believers, not for unbelievers. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and some who do not understand or some unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? <laughs> but if an unbeliever or someone who does not understand comes in while everybody is prophesying, he will be convinced by all that he is a sinner and will be judged by all, and the secrets of his heart will be laid bare, so he will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. This is just a drumbeat. There is no way around the reality that the fascination of the Corinthian believers with speaking in tongues has kept them from growing. And Paul is having to deal with it as directly as he possibly can. Now, the next couple of verses may have the most importance in terms of applying the teaching today to churches and to our own lives. Verse 26, What then shall we say, brothers? 
When you come together, everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. All of these must be done for the strengthening of the church. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and God. Now you see, there's some very clear guidelines given because of the danger of this gift of speaking in tongues. Now Paul does not forbid it when we come to the end of the chapter. And I'll read that verse to you now. Verse 39, Therefore, my brothers, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. Well, what we just read were the specific guidelines that speaking in tongues could be used. And notice, if there is no interpreter, then the speaker should keep quiet in the church. Verse 29 proceeds to contrast those speaking in tongues and the guidelines for them with those who are prophesying. Two or three prophets should speak, verse 29, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop, for you all can prophesy in turn, so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets, for God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. You see those key words again? What prophecy does is instruct and encourage. It helps you grow. Well, you, when you put this all together, you see some very uh, key things, but does anyone have any doubt that Paul is gravely concerned about speaking in tongues. Now let's take a few moments and see if we can apply these teachings. What does the practice of speaking in tongues mean for us today? Well, I would suggest to you that the key question is what is the authority in a church or denomination that guides what we believe and how we live, your faith and your practice. Now, this podcast treats Scripture as authoritative because our first doctrine in the Salvation Army says we believe that the Scriptures of the Old and New Testament are given by inspiration of God and that they only constitute the divine rule of Christian faith and practice. So the Salvation Army as a denomination asserts two things. The scriptures are inspired. That means they're God-breathed. And the scriptures are authoritative. And they are the only authority for us as a denomination. And it rules both our faith and our practice. So we would accept the cautions of 1 Corinthians 14 about tongues we would seek to do as Paul says to do, to prioritize the gifts like prophecy that edify the church and that help Christians grow in grace. We would not forbid 
the gift of tongues. We would insist that the gift of tongues be used following the specific guidelines Paul lays out in chapter 14. Not used at all in church without interpretation. Only one person at a time, never more than three. And overall, we would exercise extreme caution because Paul tells us it is a lesser gift and that speaking in tongues is speaking to God, not to other believers. Now, I know there are many, many questions for those of you listening. So let me address three of the ones most often asked. And I hope that you will find this helpful and I hope that we'll hear from you. First, the unique experience at Pentecost is nowhere referred to in the, whole, in the New Testament as something that should be sought or that would be duplicated. When Christian leaders or some of our music speaks of the need for another Pentecost, it is referring to the significance of the coming of the Holy Spirit, which was really the historic and singular nature of this event that took place. The Holy Spirit came in power. And we know that was the singular significance because as Jesus left, read about it at the end of Matthew or, I'm sorry, at the end of Luke or at the beginning of Acts, the last thing he says is, wait and the Holy Spirit will come in power upon you. So as believers, we seek the coming of the Spirit. And that's the sense in which we use the reference to Pentecost. To seek another Pentecost, as one of the wonderful hymns uh, of William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, uh, penned, does not mean to seek the experience of speaking in other languages that occurred at Pentecost, speaking in tongues. It means to seek the coming of God's Holy Spirit. Now here's the second issue I would like to address. The gift of speaking in tongues is clearly defined in Scripture. Of Protestant churches, very few use it following the guidelines in 1 Corinthians 14. I would say the majority of our churches uh, do not practice the gifts of speaking in tongues and interpretation of tongues, but of course some do. The speaking in tongues, which Paul asserts that he does privately. You remember, as we looked at that, he said, I thank God I speak in tongues more than all of you. But in church, he says, I would rather speak five intelligible words, is clearly not the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues, which requires interpretation and is done in the context of believers. Now, for 50 years, I have uh, been aware of speaking in tongues. I had a wonderful aunt who was a Salvation Army officer for many years and then became a school teacher who was filled with the Holy Spirit and sought the Lord, lived a beautiful life uh, of, uh, of spiritual power and service. And she had this prayer language that she used. That was, as a 13-year-old boy, my first encounter 
with speaking in tongues. But this is clearly a reference to what Paul says he does outside the church. Now, since then, I have spoken with and asked many believers about their own experience, those who say that they have the gift of speaking in tongues. And I would guess between 150 and 200 conversations with that many people over the years has resulted in the same experience being described by every person that in their private prayer life, they find themselves praying and then breaking into a language that they do not understand. Some have gained some understanding of what they're saying. Most of them do not understand, but they are in the presence of God in such a way that they have this temporary enablement of speaking in a heavenly language. That, I believe, is common. I have heard everyone from a general of the Salvation Army to a lieutenant in the Salvation Army and every rank in between give witness to having that experience in their private prayer life. I believe every church has people who God has empowered in this way. But that is not the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues. It seems to be the language of prayer that Paul refers to in chapter 14 that he does, he says, more often than any of the rest of them. Now, the last issue that is always asked and I think is very important for us to address. There are those who would say that the te and teach that speaking in tongues is evidence of the infilling or baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now we have just looked at every reference to speaking in tongues in the New Testament. So if you are looking for the lesson of Scripture, I want you to listen to William Greathouse. He's writing and exploring Christian holiness about this subject. And this is what he says. Any insistence on tongues or any other physical manifestation as an evidence of the infilling of the Spirit is a dead-end street that cannot but siphon off authentic power and stultify spiritual growth. Acquiring the modern so-called gift of tongues is relatively easy for some kinds of temperament. The acceptance of this as proof of a deep and valid experience in the Holy Spirit is a delusion that tends to short-circuit the deeper hunger for holiness. Speaking in divinely given languages, besides being symbolic, was an evangelizing tool on the day of Pentecost. And at Caesarea and Ephesus, the other two places I mentioned to you and we looked at, it was a proof to the skeptical Jews that the Holy Spirit was equally available to Gentiles. But the teaching that this or any other gift was uniformly indispensable to the baptism with the Spirit or as evidence of a deep state of grace was expressly and vigorously repudiated in Paul's discussion in 1 Corinthians 14, which we just finished studying. Now, there are many, many other questions. I would want to say this. It is not our place to be critical of other believers and the way they worship. Because of our commitment to the authority of Scripture, 
I summarized at the end of the teaching what that would mean for us, is that we would observe the guidelines of the use of the gift of speaking in tongues in any church service because Scripture is our only authority. Now, there are, we have very close theological cousins in the Pentecostal movement and the churches. It's one of the fast-growing parts of Christendom around the world. And many of them practice in a way that is different than what we have just studied in the New Testament. Some of our closest theological brothers believe that Scripture is not the only authority. There's the very well-known example of the teaching of John Wesley, who is said to have taught that experience and reason and tradition, church tradition, and scriptures are the four authorities. That's accepted by the United Methodist Church, one of the larger churches in our own uh, tradition. And so if you accept experience, for example, as an equal authority to the scripture, then you may well have a practice of utilizing speaking in tongues that is different from what is found in 1 Corinthians 14. Because God has spoken in the mind of those denominations, not only through scripture, but also through the tradition of the church, through our reason and through experience. So it is not my intent in any way to be critical of anyone in terms of the way that they worship. But it is my intention to teach the scripture. And the scripture has been clear as we have studied it uh, today in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Now let's close by putting that back in the context of growing in grace. I mean, the gift of speaking in tongues and the interpretation is all to be edifying to the church because God is showing his power. It's not that, that there's any kind of revelation. It's clear in 1 Corinthians 14 that when you speak in tongues, you are praising God uh, and, and offering to God your praises. It is not a way of giving teaching to the church, but it is evidence of the power of the Holy Spirit that edifies the church when it's done properly. So it's important for us to remember we belong to each other and God will use the things he desires for our benefit. When Jesus came into the world, he gave a special meaning to the fellowship of people together. He did so when he carried out his ministry. He called 12 disciples to be with him. He forged them into a community and that community would become the nucleus of the Christian church. One of the most remarkable things about biblical faith is that it is never an individual matter. Israel is a people. God's promise to Abraham was to make of him a great nation. He calls 12 disciples, Jesus does, to follow him. The word church itself means assembly. The Christian faith is something given to individuals, but part of receiving it involves being grafted into a believing community. That's the role 
And I believe that's the understanding we need to cultivate of corporate holiness. Salvation comes in the form of a relationship. It's a relationship with Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the one who tells us in very particular terms that he's calling us to a community of faith. If we reject the community that he calls us into, it might just tell us something about whether we really care anything about knowing him after all. You see, there is no loving God apart from loving neighbor. And loving our neighbor is a concrete thing that takes place first and foremost within the fellowship of Christian believers. Now, of course, loving our neighbor, remember the parable of the Good Samaritan, includes everyone, regardless of creed. Yet it's also true that such love has to begin somewhere. And if we are to learn how to love real people in a real way, we're likely to begin that process of transformation within the community of those that have a claim on our lives and to whom we belong. Listen to Galatians 6.10. Paul says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all men and especially to those of the household of faith. Holiness is growing in grace. And that means growing in the church. I'm thankful for Captain Ken Chapman challenging us to look at social holiness. I'm grateful at the resources that we've been able to uh, open up for you. I would commend to you Social Holiness, the book by Jonathan Raymond, a wonderful uh, salvationist and Christian psychologist. It's subtitled, The Company We Keep. Dear friends, if we are to be holy, even as God is holy, then we must do so as part of the community that God has called us into. And that's where we can grow in grace. And that is our prayer for each of us, for you, and certainly that is my prayer for my own life. I hope that you have enjoyed this study on social holiness. Again, we encourage you to respond uh, if you have questions or comments. And I pray the Lord will bless you and keep you until we meet again next month. This is the Holiness Podcast, and I'll see you then. Thanks so much for listening, and we'd love to hear from you. Share your thoughts, questions, or prayer requests. Visit us at SalvationArmySoundcast.org slash holiness. And if you're enjoying this Bible study, share it with a friend. They can subscribe wherever they get their podcasts. Thank you.